Well, good morning, church. It's glad to, in my heart to be able to be with you, even if it's mean, by means of media. Uh, it is a difficult time right now, a different time right now. But I'm reminded from the second chapter of Acts, where the church had its birth and was just beginning in so many ways, how the scripture says, and they were together in one place, and they were together in that they had all things in common. They were one mind and one heart. They were together, together. And that's how we are usually on a, on a regular Sunday morning, even though we're in an early service and a later service. We're together, together. We're together in one place, but together in one heart and mind. Well, right now we can't gather in one place, but we can gather in one heart and mind. So I encourage you to do that even now. Take your Bible, if you will, and find the, the Gospel of John. We're going to be there in just a moment in that 15th chapter. We're going to come close to getting uh, to the end of that right now. God has been doing some tremendous things in this, in this passage. He has uh, explained the relationship that he has with us as believers, that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, the Father is the vine dresser caring for us. And everything he does is with the purpose that he might bring forth fruit out of our lives. And we've seen various examples of what that fruit looks like, how it's answered prayer, how it's obedience, how it's uh, love and loving for one another. All of these and so many different aspects of fruit. And he's going on and there's some things that are just so incredible that he's promising. And as we come to the passage today, boy, we almost get whiplash. Because things have been so encouraging and promising and, and, and we just, I think the disciples might have think the world is just going to open up to them and they're going to be sharing the gospel and people are going to be coming in droves to faith. And then Jesus pops her bubble. Read along with me in the 15th chapter of John, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, well now wait a minute. He's just talking about how we are chosen and we're appointed and we're going to bear fruit and that fruit's going to remain and prayers are going to be answered and we're going to love one another and then kapow! There's this change. There's this difference. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law. They hated me without cause. 
Will you go hang out for just a moment at that 19th verse? There's a couple things I want you to see. It says there that we were of the world. You and I, all of us were of the world. We totally identified with the world. And we were lost in our sin and in the darkness of this world. But it says, now you are not of the world. Something's happened. Something phenomenal. Something stupendous. Something cataclysmic has happened. What? It says in the next, later in that verse, He has chosen us out of the world. He has saved us, redeemed us, adopted us, rescued us out of the kingdom of this world. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, he meaning Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Wow. So we were of the world. But now we're out of the world because we've been chosen out of the world. We're his, we're saved, we're redeemed. And what's the result of that? This world hates us. It hates us because it hated Jesus. And it hates Jesus because he is exposing their sins. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to open our hearts to you. And as we do, I know you're opening your heart to us. You're calling us to yourself. Calling us into sweet fellowship. And there's so many positives that come out of that. So many tremendous truths that come out of that. So much comfort and peace and power and anointing. But in the midst of that, Lord, you loved your disciples and you love us too much not to paint us the whole picture. This world is not going to like that because they didn't like you. Satan's not going to like the fact that he, he lost one that was his disciple who's now a disciple of Christ. Open the word before us, Lord. We ask in the name of the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus knew that he was about to leave his disciples. And way back as we started our study in chapter 13 and 14, he's telling them, this is going to happen. I'm going to leave you. I don't want you to be uh, comfortless. I don't want you to be alone. And so I'm, I'm preparing my spirit to come and minister alongside you. And all of these wonderful things are going to happen because my love is flowing through you like the vine. The, the sap flows through the vine and into the branches and all this fruit is coming off. And these wonderful things are going to happen. But let me assure you, it's not all going to be roses. It's not all going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Listen, the world hates believers in Christ. Because they first hated Christ. That's the reality. The world hates those who love Jesus. And our job is to tell the world that Jesus loves them anyway. That's the calling he's placed on our lives. So these verses I've read today just is against the backdrop of all of these wonderful things. And the fruit that God is growing in our lives. But he says the reality of that has to also understand there's a painful part of following me as well. He wanted them to be prepared. He didn't want them to be shocked. He didn't want them to assume that, that, that crowds were going to come and, and governments were going to topple. All of these things were going to happen. 
the difficult times would come as well. The world hates believers because it hates the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at that for a few moments. What, what happens is the process of this. Four, four things I want you to take home. And the first is this. It's on your answering sheet. If you'll look at that, uh, we sent it to you uh, via email earlier today. If you haven't already got that, stop the, the, the recording right now and go get that to where you can, can follow along with us. First is this. Hatred or love for Jesus either divides or unites people. Hatred or love for Jesus either divides or unites people. There's a contrast between verses 17 and 18. Christians are known for their love, but the world is known for its hatred. In just verses 18 and 19, Jesus uses this powerful word, hatred, six times. Six times to describe the attitude of the world. To us, and he's talking about world. He's talking about this organized worldview that is under Satan's domain and is opposed to God and opposed to his Christ. In 1 John 5:19, the apostles call he draws this contrast. He said, We know that we're of God, and this whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's who we're dealing with. Now I assure you that if you go out and you talk to your neighbors or whatever and, and you say to them, hey, do you hate Jesus? They say, well, no. No, we don't hate Jesus. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't follow him. We don't, care for, we don't care one way or the other about him. We don't hate him. And if you would go to those same neighbors and you would ask, well, uh, are, are you in league with Satan? Are you a disciple of Satan? No, no, I'm no Satanist. What are you, what are you talking about? They would, they would really disagree with the, the basis of this passage. They think that just because they really don't care about Christ one way or the other, that they really don't have an attitude to him one way or the other, you know, that, that, that they're okay, that, that they're all right. They go about their daily lives. They live the way they want to. They act the way they want to. They give no thought of God unless something cataclysmic happens and then they cry out to him maybe. But this world is not going to say, oh, I hate God or I hate Jesus. You know, even an atheist doesn't say that. Or they've made their own God. <laughs> their God is their own intellect. But this is what Jesus says in 1518. If the world hates you, you know that first it hated me before it ever hated you. And, and the if there is not of, well, maybe they might hate you. It's the kind of if that really says since or because they hate you. Here's the reason because it. It's really not a matter of if. It's just a matter of, of when. And you, what, what Jesus actually does is he draws a line here. He says, he who hates me hates my father also. You just can't separate God the Father from God the Son from God the Holy Spirit. An attitude about one is an attitude about the other. Now you, you may wonder, why does Jesus say the world hates him and the Father? Well listen, a line is drawn. A line is drawn and Jesus drew that line. In Matthew chapter 12, 30, he says this, He who is not with me is against me. 
Jesus was black and white right here. He, he drew a line in the sand. And, and he said, you got to take sides. Either you love Jesus and you love the Father and you're a Christ follower or you're against him. I mean, this, this, this boat's leaving the dock. You're either on the boat or you're on the dock. You can't straddle between the two. A decision has to be made. D.A. Carson wrote a book called Jesus' Farewell Discourse about these very chapters that we're studying and, and he points out that the world's hatred is really embodied in those who claim to have such a liberal and tolerant worldview. Let me quote him here. They demonstrate their forbearance and their large-hearted goodness when they confront diverse opinions, varied lifestyles, and even idiotic practices. But if some Christian claims that Christianity is exclusive, that Je just like Jesus insisted, or moral absolutes exist because they're grounded in the very character of God himself, just like the Bible teaches, or that there is a hell to be shunned and a heaven to be gained. The most intemperate language is used to exhortate that pure fool. The world hates those who stand on biblical principles. End quote. The world hates believers for several reasons. I just want, three are pointed out here in the text I want to give you. The world hates believers because we're different. Fill in the blank there. We're different than they are. And we're different in many different ways. But these three, let me underscore. First of all is this. We're different in our calling. Fill in that blank. We're different in our calling. Because Christ chose us out of this world. He called us and chose us and appointed us out of this world's system. John 15, 19 says, If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I, but I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. Of the world. Not of the world. Called and chosen out of the world. You see, we have different values, different morals. We vote differently. We talk differently. And it's because Jesus Christ is our Master and Lord. And we honor him with our lifestyle and our choices. But these choices and that lifestyle is radically different from the world in which we live. Have you noticed this world cannot tolerate anybody that's different? I remember in, in one of the many schools I went to as I was growing up, because we traveled in so many different places, my father being in the Marine Corps, that... Uh, and I think we were in South Carolina at the time. But there's this little boy that was in our class at the beginning of school. And, and he had a very withered, tiny arm. And, and some of the bones had never formed in his arm. And it was amazing to watch how that child was picked on, ridiculed, and called names, and hated because he was different. If this world would do that for an innocent child, what do they do for those whose morals and values and way of life is so incredibly different? That's why the world hates us the way they do. And the second reason given here is that we have a different master. Jesus is our Lord and the world is still in the clutches of Satan. 
In verse 20, Jesus says that, you know, we're his, he, he's the master and we're his slaves. But Satan is the ruler and the God of this world. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that he has blinded the eyes of lost people lest they see and they're able to believe. You know what? Before God rescued me, before he redeemed you, before we were born again, we all lived in Satan's domain of darkness. But now we live in the kingdom of light. The world does not understand our thinking. It doesn't understand our behavior. The world believes that people are basically good. People are just basically good. But the Bible says all mankind's lost and in need of redemption. The people of this world live for themselves and they live for their own agendas. Whereas the Lord's people live for him and for kingdom purposes. The world makes its own relative morals and ethics and makes their own choices about right or wrong. Whereas the people of God believe there are absolute standards of right and wrong that are biblically based out of the heart and character of God. And third, we're, we're hated because we have a different knowledge. Jesus said, we know the Father, but the world does not know the Father. All these things they will do to you for not my namesake because they do not know the one who sent me. The fundamental problem of the people on the planet is they don't know God. Instead, they make up their own gods. They, they make up their own rules. They make up their own morals. They make up their own right and wrong. But knowing God is the essence of understanding and knowing and having eternal life. Jesus says this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Here it is. I'm about to show you. Hold on. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this world hates believers, first and foremost, because it hates Jesus. Secondly, the world hates us because Jesus exposes sin. He exposes sin. 15.22 If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have their sin, but they have no excuse for their sin. And then he goes on to verse 24. If I had not done among them all the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Now, what does Jesus mean? Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that, that those who never heard of him uh, are, and his miracles are sinless. Just read Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, we've got a great Bible study going on uh, right here that is just phenomenal right now, studying the book of Romans. And, and this, it explains so very clearly. All people have the evidence of creation and the creator. Just, just look at creation and you see there's got to be a designer behind that. But they suppress this truth in their own unrighteousness. So Romans says they're without excuse. All people have also violated their own conscience doing what instinctively in their heart they know is wrong, but they do it anyway. And then they're guilty before God. So obviously what Jesus means here is that his coming and his many miracles and all of his teachings increase the responsibility of those who heard and saw. Their responsibility with them was elevated. Matthew 11, 
verses 20 through 24, Jesus denounces the cities that he did so much teaching in and did so many miracles in. And he said, you know, in the day of judgment, it's going to be better for Tyre and Sidon. It's going to be better for Sodom than it's going to be for those who dwell there. Because all of these things were done, and all of my teachings were done there, and yet they refused to believe. When Jesus exposes people's sin, unless Holy Spirit has been drawing them to himself, they're going to react defensively. They're going to be angry. And that's why Jesus even told his unbelieving stepbrothers... In, in uh, John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me. Because I testify of it. And that its deeds are evil. Many of you have memorized much of the third chapter of John. When you get to verses 19 and 20. Let me remind you what it says. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds might be exposed. So, listen. Their unbelief was not because they didn't have evidence their unbelief was not because Jesus had not preached to them and demonstrated who he was in miraculous ways. It was a hardening of the heart and a love of their own sin that doomed them each and every one. There's a couple of things I want you to see right here. Let me pause a minute to make two quick points. First, if you live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, you are going to be a threat to unbelievers that are in your family, in your neighborhood, where you work, where you go to school, it's going to happen. Because your godly life, being a Christ follower, is going to expose their sin. It's going to. The light of Christ is going to shine out of you into their darkness. And the world does not want the light of truth to expose what they're doing in the darkness. So they, they attack you as if you're the source of the light. But you're not. It's the light of Christ shining through you. Or they'll get you to adopt their lifestyle. To sin right along with them. And so diminish the light that it won't expose them. But let me make a second observation here. If you have not surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, but you go to church regularly, you, you, you listen to all of the, the, the songs, you're a part of the Bible studies, you know all of the stories, you hear all of the preaching, and yet you stubbornly refuse to give your heart to Christ. Dear friend, you will be under a stricter judgment. This is dangerous for you. Because you have seen and heard and experienced more than enough evidence that Christ is real and that you should turn to him. But if you reject that evidence, refuse to repent of your sins, my dear friend, you will incur a stricter judgment. So the world hates believers, first because it hates Jesus, then because Jesus exposes his sin. Two more things quickly. If the world thinks that you're wonderful, listen, 
you may need to question whether you're being a bold enough witness for Christ. Witness, underscore that in your notes. Let me make this clear. You should not be the source of offense. You should not be insensitive or rude or obnoxious to your lost friends and neighbors. We need to conduct ourselves above reproach with, with wisdom and grace and sensitivity and love. But here's where you're going to catch flack. Here's where I catch flack. All right? Unbelievers will be tolerant of you until you tell them that Jesus is the only way to God. And then they'll accuse you of being intolerant. They'll be friendly until you make it clear that God has absolute moral standards for us to live by. And then they'll accuse you of being self-righteous and judgmental. They'll be tolerant of your Christianity until you refuse to cover their wrongdoings or lie for the company or whatever. And at that point, they'll turn against you and they'll turn everybody they can against you. I would not be being honest if I didn't point out what Jesus does. But listen, friends, please listen to me right now. If you state or imply that unbelievers, if, if they're just good, more good than bad that they'll go to heaven, if you laugh at their filthy jokes, if you go to the filthy movies with them, if you hang out at the bars and the dives, if, if you live just like they do, folks, you're diminishing your witness as a believer. And rather than trying to be like Christ, you're trying to be like the lost. Do you see a problem with that? I assure you that He does. He does. Now you may think, well, look, if I don't go along with them, I may lose my job. I don't want to be insensitive here. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ around this world who are standing up for Jesus Christ and losing their lives. And we're worried about losing a job? Come on, folks. Come on. Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all things evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Understand, folks, we are different. And we can't be ashamed of that difference. We have to magnify that difference. The final point is this. The world's hatred for Christ and believers will not hinder God's sovereignty. But rather, it's simply going to fulfill it. Jesus says in verse 25 here, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. He was citing Psalm 69.4. God's sovereignty is not going to be thwarted by man's sin. Not in the least. And the application of this is, look folks, when it seems like evil is winning the day, when it seems like good is, is just disappearing in our world, God is still on the throne. He is still going to bring this world to the very same conclusion that he says in his word that he's going to bring it to. Our role is not to second guess him, but to be faithful and obedient. 
So, Brother Fred, what am I going to make of all this? What's, what's my takeaway? What, what is it that you are to do and to know? Well, I think the Lord, first of all, would say, you need to be, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He wanted his disciples to know the same thing he wants us to know. Don't be knocked off balance when this world begins to attack you. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to his uh, young protege Timothy what Derek, I mean, excuse me, what Eric read earlier today. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But know this, that how the world may see us and how the world may treat us is not a reason to be fearful or to back off. No. He just tells us ahead of time, be forewarned. Know how to pray. Get your backbone tight. Get your armor on good. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. That's number one takeaway. The second takeaway is this. All right, you ready? Don't be a jerk. Just don't be a jerk, all right? It's not your job to expose somebody else's sin. That's Holy Spirit's job. You don't need to come across judgmental. You don't need to be beating somebody over the head with a 20-pound Bible. No. Quit trying to be Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that you can't say, Thus saith the Lord. It doesn't mean that, that you can't speak truth into their lives. But folks, don't walk over Holy Spirit. You, know, you be faithful to share how God has transformed your heart. How, how your bondage has been broken. How your, heal, your emotions have been healed. And how God is doing such things in your life. Share your story and share the gospel. But let Holy Spirit do what only Holy Spirit can do. Third is this. Be bold in professing your faith in Christ. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm doing all of these things to create all this fruit to be going through you. And he's about to tell us one of the greatest aids we're going to have is the comforter. We're going to get to that next. The Holy Spirit, who is the comforter that's going to be in you and walk with you through this. He's going to empower you to be a bold witness. And he's going to comfort you when the world comes against you. You just be faithful. And finally this, obedience is the order of the day today. You just be an embodiment of God's love. Love those who are unlovely. Let God's love ooze out of you into the lives of others. You know, Holy Spirit knows when to shine the light of Christ's presence into the darkness in somebody's life. And rather than them getting angry, they come under conviction and they're pulled to repentance and salvation. That's what happened to me. That's probably what happened to you. So let's let Holy Spirit do his job. So here we are today. I think most of you who are watching and listening today are believers in Christ. You're probably members of our church family or you're regular attenders here. But you may have someone in your home, somebody that you've invited to watch with you today, that have never come to the point that they have asked Jesus Christ to be their personal Lord and Savior. So I want to tell you just briefly how to do that. You know, God loves you. He loved you so much. He, he came from heaven to earth. He came from all of his majesty as being worshipped by 
all of creation somehow miraculously scrunched into the tiny egg of a woman, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, loved people with the love of the Father. But the world hated him. The world hated him so much, the world crucified him. But what the world didn't know was when Jesus died, he died to take your sins and, and mine upon himself. When he died, it was to take the, world, the world's weight of shame upon his own shoulders. And then you know what happened three days later? He rose from the grave. Easter's coming up soon. That's when we celebrate the resurrection. He rose from the grave. And he, he did that to absolutely show his preeminence over death. But he did it for another reason. That life, that resurrected life, that eternal life that flowed through him, now he's able to offer to us that eternal life, that life of God, he offers to us to take our sins away and give us his life. So right now, I want to ask you to pray with me. You just bow your heads right where you are. All of you at home, bow your heads so your guests won't feel like it's something they're just doing. All of you bow your heads together. Let's pray. Oh, God, right now, in the life and in the heart of those who are watching today, there's been a longing, a desiring to have a better life. They know that morally they've done so much wrong. They've made their own mind up to do what they want to do the way they want to do it. And now they find themselves at odds with you. Their sin has a, just dug this chasm between them and holy God. But right now they're hearing a message that the cross of Jesus Christ is laid down on that chasm and provides a bridge where they might come and be enveloped in the love of God. Right now, right now, will you encourage those watching, listening right now to just pray like this, Holy Spirit, just pray like this. Say, God, I need you. God, right now, I confess to you that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Right now, I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I dare to believe when you died on the cross, it was to take my sin and shame upon yourself. So right now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I want your life. I want your eternal life. I want your forgiveness and your presence and your power to flow through me. Come, Lord Jesus. I give my life to you. Be my Lord, my master, my king. I believe this with faith that you're giving me right now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, now look at me just a moment, please. I know you're looking at a computer screen or a TV screen or whatever, but look at me for a moment. The angels in heaven are rejoicing, and we want to rejoice with you too. If you're with friends, will you tell them that you made this decision today? And, and friends, will you do this? Will you encourage them to call our church office? 
And give us the privilege of talking with your friend there and encouraging them, giving them some scriptures and rejoicing along with the angels of heaven. But now let me speak to those of you who have already asked Christ into your heart. These are tough days. These are hard times. And it's time when we need Holy Spirit's comfort and power more than ever. Let's not grow weary in well-doing. Let's not back off. Let's not be afraid. This is a time unparalleled in the history of our country to take the love of God in hands of service into our community. We're coming up with some wonderful ways to do that. You're coming up with some incredible ways to do that. So let's pray that we can be faithful in this time as we dismiss in prayer right now. Pray with me, believers, that we'll not have a spirit of fear. No. But of love and of power and of a sound mind. You pray with me. Father God, even though we have to be apart from one another right now, we're united in in one mind and heart, in our love for you, and in our calling to share that love with this world. We may have to keep six six foot distance. We may have to be careful about going to large gatherings. But we've got neighbors. We've got friends. We've got ways we can reach out and share our love. And so, Father, let us not huddle together in fear in our homes, secluded from this world, but find a way through telephone and internet and any way possible to encourage those who are frightened, to let them know of a God that is a commander of germs and viruses that is bigger than life and bigger than death. Let us be the emissaries of that love and confidence. Lord, may we not shrink at a time like this, but be bolder than ever. And Father, may soon and very soon we be able to be together, together, yet again. Until that day, may we be found faithful. In the name of our Lord Jesus, do we pray. Amen. God bless you. We love you.